section four of popular lectures on scientific subjects this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. this recording is by michelle fry baton ridge louisiana in september two thousand twenty one popular lectures on scientific subjects by herman von helmholtz chapter three part two form the painter seeks to produce in his picture an image of external objects the first aim of our investigation must be to ascertain what degree and what kind of similarity he can expect to attain and what limits are assigned to him by the nature of his method the uneducated observer usually requires nothing more than an elusive resemblance to nature the more this is obtained the more does he delight in the picture an observer on the contrary whose taste in works of art has been more finely educated will consciously or unconsciously require something more and something different a faithful copy of crude nature he will at most regard as an artistic feat to satisfy him he will need artistic selection grouping and even idealization of the objects represented the human figures in a work of art must not be the everyday figures such as we see in photographs they must have expression and a characteristic development and if possible beautiful forms which have perhaps belonged to no living individuals or indeed any individuals which have ever existed but only to such a one as might exist and as must exist to produce a vivid perception of any particular aspect of human existence in its complete and unhindered development if however the artist is to produce an artistic arrangement of only idealized types whether of man or of natural objects must not the picture be an actual complete and directly true delineation of that which would appear if it anywhere came into being since the picture is on a plain surface this faithful representation can of course only give a faithful perspective view of the objects yet our eye which in its optical properties is equivalent to a camera obscura the well-known apparatus of the photographer gives on the retina which is its sensitive plate only perspective views of the external world these are stationary like the drawing on a picture as long as the standpoint of the eye is not altered and in fact if we restrict ourselves in the first place to the form of the object viewed and disregard for the present any consideration of color by a correct perspective drawing we can present to the eye of an observer who views it from a correctly chosen point of view the same forms of the visual image as the inspection of the objects themselves would present to the same eye when viewed from the corresponding point of view but apart from the fact that any movement of the observer whereby his eye changes its position will produce displacements of the visual image different when he stands before objects from those when he stands before the image i could speak of only one eye for which equality of impression is to be established we however see the world with two eyes which occupy somewhat different positions in space and which therefore show two different perspective views of objects before us 
this difference of the images of the two eyes forms one of the most important means of estimating the distance of objects from our eye and of estimating depth and this is what is wanting to the painter or even turns against him since in binocular vision the picture distinctly forces itself on our perception as a plain surface you must all have observed the wonderful vividness which the solid form of objects acquires when good stereoscopic images are viewed in the stereoscope a kind of vividness in which either of the pictures is wanting when viewed without the stereoscope the illusion is most striking and instructive with figures in simple line models of crystals and the like in which there is no other element of illusion the reason of this deception is that looking with two eyes we view the world simultaneously from somewhat different points of view and thereby acquire two different perspective images with the right eye we see somewhat more of the right side of the objects before us and also somewhat more of those behind it than we do with the left eye and conversely we see with the left more of the left side of an object and of the background behind its left edges and partially concealed by the edge but a flat picture shows to the right eye absolutely the same picture and all objects represented upon it as to the left eye if then we make for each eye such a picture as that eye would perceive if itself looked at the object and if both pictures are combined in the stereoscope so that each eye sees its corresponding picture then as far as form is concerned the same impression is produced in the two eyes as the object itself produces but if we look at a drawing or picture with both eyes we just as easily recognize that it is a representation on a plane surface which is different from that which the actual object would show simultaneously to both eyes hence is due the well-known increase in the vividness of a picture if it is looked at with only one eye and while quite stationary through a dark tube we thus exclude any comparison of its distance with that of adjacent objects in the room for it must be observed that as we use different pictures seen with the two eyes for the perception of depth in like manner as the body moves from one place to another the pictures seen by the same eye serve for the same purpose in moving whether on foot or riding the nearer objects are apparently displaced in comparison with the more distant ones the former appeared to recede the latter appeared to move with us hence arises a far stricter distinction between what is near and what is distant than seeing with one eye from one and the same spot would ever afford us if we move towards the picture the sensuous impression that it is a flat picture hanging against a wall forces itself more strongly upon us than if we look at it while we are stationary compared with a large picture at a greater distance all those elements which depend on binocular vision and on the movement of the body are less operative because in very distant objects the differences between the images of the two eyes or between the aspect from adjacent points of view seem less hence large pictures furnish a less distorted aspect of their object than small ones while the impression on a stationary eye of a small picture close at hand 
might be just the same as that of a large distant one. In a painting close at hand, the fact that it is a flat picture continually forces itself more powerfully and more distinctly on our perception. The fact that perspective drawings which are taken from too near a point of view may easily produce a distorted impression is, I think, connected with this. For here the want of the second representation for the other eye, which would be very different, is too marked on the other hand what are called geometrical projections that is perspective drawings which represent a view taken from an infinite distance give in many cases a particularly favourable view of the object although they correspond to a point of sight which does not in reality occur here the pictures of both eyes for such an object are the same you will notice that in these respects there is a primary incongruity and one which cannot be got over between the aspect of a picture and the aspect of reality this incongruity may be lessened but never entirely overcome owing to the imperfect action of binocular vision the most important natural means is lost of enabling the observer to estimate the depth of objects represented in the picture the painter possesses a series of subordinate means partly of limited applicability and partly of slight effect of expressing various distances by depth it is not unimportant to become acquainted with these elements as arising out of theoretical considerations for in the practice of the art of painting they have manifestly exercised great influence on the arrangement selection and mode of illumination of the objects represented the distinctness of what is represented is indeed of subordinate importance when considered in reference to the ideal aims of the art it must not however be depreciated for it is the first condition by which the observer attains an intelligibility of expression which impresses itself without fatigue on the observer this direct intelligibility is again the preliminary condition for an undisturbed and vivid action of the picture on the feelings and mood of the observer the subordinate methods of expressing depth which have been referred to depend in the first place on perspective nearer objects partially conceal more distant ones but can never themselves be concealed by the latter if therefore the painter skillfully groups his objects so that the feature in question comes into play this gives at once a very certain gradation of far and near this mutual concealment may even preponderate over the binocular perception of depth if stereoscopic pictures are intentionally produced in which each counteracts the other moreover in bodies of regular or of known form the forms of perspective projection are for the most part characteristic for the depth of the object if we look at houses or other results of man's artistic activity we know at the outset that the forms are for the most part plane surfaces at right angles to each other with occasional circular or even spheroidal surfaces and in fact when we know so much a correct perspective drawing is sufficient to produce the whole shape of the body this is also the case with the figures of men and animals which are familiar to us and whose forms moreover show two symmetrical halves
the best perspective drawing is however of but little avail in the case of irregular shapes rough blocks of rock and ice masses of foliage and the like that this is so is best seen in photographs where the perspective and shading may be absolutely correct and yet the total impression is indistinct and confused when human habitations are seen in a picture they represent to the observer the direction of the horizontal surfaces at the place at which they stand and in comparison therewith the inclination of the ground which without them would often be difficult to represent the apparent magnitude which objects whose actual magnitude is known present in different parts of the picture must also be taken into account men and animals as well as familiar trees are useful to the painter in this respect in the more distant centre of the landscape they appear smaller than in the foreground and thus their apparent magnitude furnishes a measure of the distance at which they are placed shadows and more especially double ones are of great importance you all know how much more distinct is the impression which a well-shaded drawing gives as distinguished from an outline the shading is hence one of the most difficult but at the same time most effective elements in the productions of the draughtsman and painter it is his task to imitate the fine gradation and transitions of light and shade on rounded surfaces which are his chief means of expressing their modelling with all their fine changes of curvature he must take into account the extension or restriction of the sources of light and the mutual reflection of the surfaces on each other while the modifications of the lighting on the surface of bodies themselves is often dubious for instance an intaglio of a metal may with a particular illumination produce the impressions of relief which are only illuminated from the other side double shadows on the contrary are undoubtedly indications that the body which throws the shadow is nearer the source of light than that which receives the shadow this rule is so completely without exception that even in stereoscopic views a falsely placed double shadow may destroy or confuse the entire illusion the various kinds of illumination are not all equally favorable for obtaining the full effect of shadows when the observer looks at the objects in the same direction as that in which the light falls upon them he sees only their illuminated sides and nothing of the shadow the whole relief which the shadows could give then disappears if the object is between the source of light and the observer he only sees the shadows hence we need lateral illumination for a picturesque shading and over surfaces which like those of plain or hilly land only present slightly moving figures we require light which is almost in the direction of the surface itself for only such a one gives shadows this is one of the reasons which makes illumination by the rising or the setting sun so effective the forms of the landscape become more distinct to this must also be added the influence of color and of aerial light which we shall subsequently discuss direct illumination from the sun or from a flame makes the shadows sharply defined and hard illumination from a very wide luminous surface such as a cloudy sky makes them confused or destroys them altogether between these two extremes there are transitions 
illumination by a portion of the sky defined by a window or by trees etc allows the shadows to be more or less prominent according to the nature of the object you must have seen of what importance this is to photographers who have to modify their light by all manner of screens and curtains in order to obtain well-modelled portraits of more importance for the representation of depth than the elements hitherto enumerated and which are more or less of local and accidental significance is what i call aerial perspective by this we understand the optical action of the light which the illuminated masses of air between the observer and distant objects give this arises from a fine opacity in the atmosphere which never entirely disappears if in a transparent medium there are fine transparent particles of varying density and varying refrangibility in so far as they are struck by it they deflect the light passing through such a medium partly by reflection and partly by refraction to use an optical expression they scatter it in all directions if the opaque particles are sparsely distributed so that a great part of the light can pass through them without being deflected distant objects are seen in sharp well-defined outlines through such a medium while at the same time a portion of the light which is deflected is distributed in the transparent medium as an opaque halo water rendered turbid by a few drops of milk shows this dispersion of the light and cloudiness very distinctly the light in this case is deflected by the microscopic globules of butter which are suspended in the milk in the ordinary air of our rooms this turbidity is very apparent when the room is closed and a ray of sunlight is admitted through a narrow aperture we see then some of these solar particles large enough to be distinguished by the naked eye while others form a fine homogeneous turbidity but even the latter must consist mainly of suspended particles of organic substances for according to an observation by tyndall they can be burnt if the flame of a spirit lamp is placed directly below the path of these rays the air rising from the flame stands out quite dark in the surrounding bright turbidity that is to say the air rising from the flame has been quite freed from dust in the open air besides dust and occasional smoke we must often also take into account the turbidity arising from incipient aqueous deposits where the temperature of moist air sinks so far that the water retained in it can no longer exist as invisible vapour part of the water settles then in the form of fine drops as a kind of the very finest aqueous dust and forms a finer or denser fog that is to say cloud the turbidity which forms in hot sunshine and dry air may arise partly from dust which the ascending currents of warm air whirl about and partly from the irregular mixture of cold and warm layers of air of different density as is seen in the tremulous motion of the lower layers of air over surfaces irradiated by the sun but science can as yet give no explanation of the turbidity in the higher regions of the atmosphere which produces the blue of the sky we do not know whether it arises from suspended particles of foreign substances 
or whether the molecules of air themselves may not act as turbid particles in the luminous ether the color of the light reflected by the opaque particles mainly depends on their magnitude when a block of wood floats on water and by a succession of falling drops we produce small wave rings near it these are repelled by the floating wood as if it were a solid wall but in the long waves of the sea a block of wood would be rocked about without the waves being thereby materially disturbed in their progress now light is well known to be an undulatory motion of the ether which fills all space the red and yellow rays have the longest waves the blue and violet the shortest very fine particles therefore which disturb the uniformity of the ether will accordingly reflect the latter rays more markedly than the red and yellow rays the light of turbid media is bluer the finer are the opaque particles while the larger particles of uniform light reflect all colors and therefore give a whitish turbidity of this kind is the celestial blue that is the color of the turbid atmosphere as seen against dark cosmical space the purer and the more transparent the air the bluer is the sky in like manner it is bluer and darker when we ascend high mountains partly because the air at great heights is freer from turbidity and partly because there is less air above us but the same blue which is seen against the dark celestial space also occurs against dark terrestrial objects for instance when a thick layer of illuminated air is between us and masses of deeply shaded or wooded hills the same aerial light makes the sky blue as well as the mountains excepting that in the former case it is pure while in the latter it is mixed with the light from objects behind and moreover it belongs to a coarser turbidity of the lower regions of the atmosphere so that it is whiter in hot countries and with dry air the aerial turbidity is also finer in the lower regions of the air and therefore the blue in front of distant terrestrial objects is more like that of the sky the clearness and the pure colors of italian landscapes depend mainly on this fact on high mountains particularly in the morning the aerial turbidity is often so slight that the colors of the most distant objects can scarcely be distinguished from those of the nearest the sky may then appear almost bluish black conversely the denser turbidity consists mainly of coarser particles and is therefore whitish as a rule this is the case in the lower layers of air and in states of weather in which the aqueous vapor in the air is near its point of condensation on the other hand the light which reaches the eye of the observer after having passed through a long layer of air has been robbed of part of its violet and blue by scattered reflections it therefore appears yellowish to reddish yellow or red the former when the turbidity is fine the latter when it is coarse thus the sun and the moon at their rising and setting and also distant brightly illuminated mountain tops especially snow mountains appear colored these colorations are moreover not peculiar to the air but occur in all cases in which a transparent substance is made turbid by the admixture of another transparent substance 
we see it as we have observed in diluted milk and in water to which a few drops of eau de cologne have been added whereby the ethereal oils and resins dissolved by the latter separate out and produce the turbidity excessively fine blue clouds bluer even than the air may be produced as tyndall has observed when the sun's light is allowed to exert its decomposing action on the vapors of certain carbon compounds gert called attention to the universality of this phenomenon and endeavored to base upon it his theory of color by aerial perspective we understand the artistic representation of aerial turbidity for the greater or less predominance of the aerial color above the color of the objects shows their varying distance very definitely and landscapes more especially acquire the appearance of depth according to the weather the turbidity of the air may be greater or less more white or more blue very clear air as sometimes met with after continued rain makes the distant mountains appear small and near whereas when the air contains more vapor they appear large and distant this latter is decidedly better for the landscape painter and the high transparent landscapes of mountainous regions which so often lead the alpine climber to underestimate the distance and the magnitude of the mountain tops before him are also difficult to turn to account in a picturesque manner views from the valleys and from seas and plains in which the aerial light is faintly but markedly developed are far better not only do they allow the various distances and magnitudes of what is seen to stand out but they are on the other hand favorable to the artistic unity of coloration although aerial color is most distinct in the greater depths of landscape it is not entirely wanting in front of the near objects of a room what is seen to be isolated and well defined when sunlight passes into a dark room through a hole in the shutter is also not quite wanting when the whole room is lighted here also the aerial lighting must stand out against the background and must somewhat deaden the colors in comparison with those of nearer objects and these differences also although far more delicate than against the background of a landscape are important for the historical genre or portrait painter and when they are carefully observed and imitated they greatly heighten the distinctness of his representation End of section 4